Welcome to 2.23am, a call to uncommon action, where we seek to create spaces and places for individuals to express their wholeness through evolutionary business that serves the well-being of all. I'm Christine McDougall. Today, my guest is Polly Higgins, lawyer, barrister, author. Polly was named the Earth's Lawyer by Change Awards and one of the world's top 10 visionary thinkers by The Ecologist magazine. About nine years ago, Polly had the thought, the earth needs a really good lawyer, and then she stepped into that role. Her aim is to have the law of ecocide become part of international law. When this happens, it will level the playing field for all businesses and governments, and in so doing, open the doors to massive opportunity and a healthy earth. Many of us are working to build businesses that do good, but we currently are up against businesses that couldn't care. This single law will change all of that. When I first saw Polly speak in Brisbane in early 2014, I was so stunned to see this small action and its profound implications and how it could do more for Earth than a million protests, the ongoing political fight and the billions being spent to defend the status quo or change it. Polly is actually an advocate of business, so this is not anti-business. It does really level the playing field. At 2.23am, we believe that most leaders in business want to be able to make the right choices, yet the very system they're in is actually not designed for this to be easy. The law of ecocide will change that. As usual, quotes from this episode, links, Polly's bio, are all found in the show notes on blog, dot two two three am dot com forward slash podcast and for those listeners in southeast queensland we will be hosting a three-day integral accounting workshop in january 9 10 and 11 2015 please email me for details thanks for listening I'm very excited today to be speaking with Polly Higgins, who is a lawyer, barrister, uh, and an amazing advocate uh, for the earth. Uh, Polly is working on the law of ecocide being part of international law. Thank you so much for joining us, Polly. It's lovely to have you. No, it's absolutely my delight. <laughs> um, so so uh, what I'd love to you to explain to the audience uh, because I know most of them uh, won't know of your work and what you're doing, uh, is if you can if you can uh, speak a little bit about uh, how you plan to bring uh, ecocide into international law. Yeah, I I have um, proposed into the United Nations that a, we criminalise mass damage and destruction to the earth. A, this is really giving legal definition to the word ecocide, and by doing so, creating an international legal duty of care at the very top end that overrides all legal uh, duties and responsibilities. International crime acts as, um, you could say, umbrella law, meta law, uh, and uh, all other laws then must adhere to that first and foremost. So what it means in a business context is that uh, CEOs and directors must first and foremost 
determine whether or not their business activity is going to cause significant harm. And if so, it is criminal activity, so therefore cannot go there. Now, that's important because what it does do is it creates a level playing field for business uh, right across the board, whereby it's now recognised that certain, certain activities are deemed dangerous industrial activity. And either there is a choice there, either... The, the activity has to be cleaned up quite literally as well as figuratively or a different avenue and other ways taken. So often what you find is with something like this, for instance, Dirty Energy will become a clean energy company. Uh, and because they've got the level playing field uh, of law right across the board, then uh, those who decide to move fast have first mover advantage in really paving the way and demonstrating their leadership in that field and gaining all assistance that is required to enable them to transform their companies uh, from being, being the problem to ultimately being the solution. So so this, I, I when I heard you speaking in uh, Brisbane earlier this year, you uh, you talked about uh, the 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 way that this would come into play and what I the impression that I got from uh, that talk was that not only have you put enormous amount of thought behind this but actually the way that that you want to introduce this into um, into into full play and is is um, sort of a, a staged experience so um, if not the people will have to drop everything and change in a heartbeat. Um, there's a lot of consideration has gone into this. Absolutely, and this is very important. Uh, I've proposed a five-year transition period, an ecocide amnesty period, if you like. And this is very important so that companies can realign their businesses. I mean, this, is, this is massive job creation in its own right because it means training people up in skills and innovation in the other direction. And to do that, there has to be a period of um, transitioning that is assisted for those companies to reinvent their wheels, if you like. Corporations are very good at doing this. I have to say, when they have very clearly defined boundaries, uh, corporations can turn on a pin. But it's giving them the space and the time to realign their operations without fear of being prosecuted during that process. And only after there's been a five-year period, if there are companies that have chosen not to change their operations, only then do the prosecutions begin. Uh, and we already do this with national and uh, here in Europe, in, in European directives, there's, a, there's always a transition period. It, it usually it's between six months and two years. But because this is international law, uh, I propose that it be five years. Right, and so, so um, can you just say a little bit about? And I understand that, um, uh, or just a little bit more about the background of um, international law uh, um, and and the countries that are participating in that, and uh, you know how that how that because uh, not everyone shows up and plays at that level, do they? No. Um, how international criminal law works is very different from um, a, a lot of civil law, if you like. There's, mm -hmm. there's a huge difference yes. between criminal and civil law. So at the moment we have a lot of um, 
treaties, conventions, protocols. We've got the Kyoto Protocol. We've we've got the Convention on Biodiversity, for instance. We've got treaties, nuclear nuclear non-proliferation treaty. That's an example of one that uh, Britain has signed up to. In fact, we're signed up to all three of those. Problem is, is that they they have no enforcement mechanisms, or if if there are any, they're very weak. Um, and the result is, for instance, under the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty here in the UK, there are businesses here making nuclear weapons and selling them. Uh, so we haven't stopped the proliferation treaties, if you like, uh, conventions and, and protocols are, in essence, just good intent. Uh, sign up without actually having to adhere to uh, any form of consequences if if there's a, a breach of that treaty or convention. Whereas criminal law, criminal law is enforcement from the outset. So, and we understand this at actually at a, a, a you know more localized level. If you steal an apple and um, you are caught and found guilty then you are held to account in a criminal court of law. And indeed, you know, in certain circumstances and aggravating features, you could go to prison for it. So, but ironically, destroy the earth, and at the moment, there is no accountability. Uh, in fact, you can do this every single day, and you shan't be held to account in a criminal court of law because it is not a crime yet. So what ecocide law does is it creates an accountability mechanism at the very top end uh, to CEOs, directors, ministers of state, financiers, lobbyists. And this is very important because it's really a, a crime of consequence. You know, most of the time what's happening here is that decisions are being made without actually addressing the consequences, without recognizing that uh, in pursuit of profit, an energy company can be causing significant harm as a result. Not just uh, energy companies, extract, uh, heavy extractive industry as a whole actually is causing enormous amount of ecocide on a daily basis. And of course, where there is no check and balance at the very top end that attaches itself to the human beings who are making the decisions, then corners are cut. Uh, because of the pursuit of finance, of, of, of profit. And, of course, it is the law at the moment to put the interests of the shareholders first, which means to maximise profit. So where a business is working on tight margins in terms of operations start with, then any sense of paying more out to deal with environmental issues goes completely by the wayside. And ultimately, as a result, and particularly if you see this in the energy sector, more and more harm has been caused and it's escalating every day. So this, and because you're talking about international law and you mentioned here crimes of accountability, CEOs, directors, ministers of state, et cetera, et cetera. So this is, this is across the board. Um, so in other words, just on the news that I was watching on my um, Australian news um, uh, after the release of the latest report, on climate change, um, our, our prime minister was saying that uh, that Australia needs the coal industry um, to survive, and you know, yada, yada. And and of course, the opposition are saying that 
that's going to damage it. But with with a law of ecocide in place, that means that that uh, even the ministers of state, the government, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, um, are beholden to the consequences of these type of actions. Yeah, absolutely right. Uh, I mean, it, what's very interesting here is that often, and we're seeing it playing out here in Britain as well, um, politicians are falling into the trap of uh, putting um, profit first and yes. saying this is going to create jobs, this is going to bring, you know, stabilize the economy and so on and so forth. But really, this is short term gain. Um, yes. And in truth, the numbers don't stack up. But what, what is very important here is not whether or not the numbers stack up or there's financial gain to be made, but in a criminal court of law, it's in fact an aggravating feature if you're making money out of something that's causing significant harm. So Mm. that's what what we're hearing is politicians saying this is a good harm. This is a harm. Yes. (laughs) Yes. But a criminal court of law does not distinguish between a good and a bad harm. It it has to be there to judge whether or not there is a harm at play at all. Yes. And uh, let me give you an example of this. So, for instance, if you were heading up a publishing house and you end up being prosecuted in the criminal court of law for running a business that's based on it, just so happens that what you're doing is you're publishing, you're heading up an empire that's publishing uh, material to do with child sex abuse, uh, paedophilia, um, sex abuse rings and you were to turn up in court and say look you can't prosecute me look hey lots of people are making money out of this yeah. you know there's business to be made in this uh, these children are commodities and we're making a lot of good business out of it the court would say this is ridiculous we're not here to mm. judge whether or not you, know, you can make good money out of this in fact that's an aggravating feature we're here to judge whether or not this is causing significant harm and in yes. law it is a crime to cause harm to children. Um, so we are going to try you for that. And if found guilty, you will uh, be looking at a criminal sentence. So the interesting thing here is that by making money out of something that causes harm, it becomes an aggravating feature. It actually increases your sentencing rather than um, act as something that justifies it. So instead of it being a justification it becomes uh, uh, something that's actually recognised in, in a criminal court of law as being an aggravating feature. Um, mm. it's, it's, it's really fundamentally flipping our normative and opening up that space to say, this is a significant harm and therefore it is a crime and it must stop. And yes. no amount of money is going to allow that to proceed. Yeah, I, I mean, I find it remarkable, and I know at some point in the next period of time uh, we will look back or our um, our children's children or hopefully our children will look back and go, how do we ever allow um, the, the the earth to be treated like it was? Um, yeah. Rather rather like we have done with slavery and et cetera, et cetera. So, exactly. so tell me, yeah, so tell me the... Um, the how, because I know that you've done a huge amount of work behind this, and and just before I get into some of the details, can you sort of say a little bit about of your your journey that got you to the place where you are the spokesperson on the planet, pretty much for this, um, which is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, sure. I, I, it, my background is as a 
a barrister, court advocate uh, in London, and uh, I, I was actually I was very often representing big transnational corporations in court, either the employer or the, or the employee side. Uh, so a lot of corporate uh, cases, uh, employment laws, whistleblowing discrimination yes. cases. So I have a very good understanding of how the corporate uh, world operates. And what I was yes. seeing was I a lot of people that I was getting on with very well, I found it completely acceptable that they were in the business of making a lot of money out of dangerous industrial activity, out of causing yes. significant harm. And indeed didn't even see the harm in what they were doing. And I... I really, this really bothered me, you know, why is it that it's become so normalized to us yes. that we've become inured from it, numbed out, and because everyone's buying into this kind of normative that, yeah, well, we're all doing it, so it's fine. If we weren't doing it, someone else would be doing it. Hey, so that's okay. And it kind of it took me back to my school days um, in Scotland back in the 70s and 80s there was a lot of abuse uh, and set of violence uh, at school, one particular school that I went to. And it was the norm. You know, everyone kind of bought into it, even those that were being abused. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. kind of, and the amazing thing is this school is completely different now. You know, it runs mentoring schools, bullying's not allowed, and all this sort of stuff. And it's a wonderful place in comparison. But it was the normative then. Um, and yes. in fact, this is, was the way, you know, these sorts of schools were run at that time, boarding schools in Scotland and um, you know, very expensively fee-paying schools, that uh, there was a certain way of doing things, of controlling children that was deemed normal. But there wasn't anything normal about it. It was completely abnormal. But because everyone was buying into it, it was accepted as the status mm-hmm. quo. And I, I found myself as a teenager um, standing up and speaking out against this in a way yes. that actually <laughs> led to me to being expelled from the school. I, <laughs> I, 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 I found myself getting so angry at the way yes. one teacher in particular was, was bullying uh, a young child that I, I took matters into my own hands rather than the teacher absolutely something this little boy who's, you know, a quarter of his size and knocking his lights out. I I hit the teacher instead. I punched the teacher. <laughs> <laughs> half, half an hour later, I ended up outside the school gate. And I think it was no accident that I ended up becoming a lawyer. Because I worked right. quite quickly. Using fists wasn't good to work in pursuit of justice. But um, maybe it's about using words. So there was a strong vein of, um, strong sense of injustice in me when I saw something as being harm playing out. And yes. also a recognition that now I see, looking back in retrospect, that there was a buy-in. You know, even the kids were buying into it because we didn't know any different. I, I did, actually. I, I'd been to another school earlier. Uh, I'd had, a, a, as a child, very young... I'd been at a, a wonderful kindergarten, which was really a very creative open space. So I'd had a taste of something different 
So I knew very keenly how wrong this was. I'd, I'd seen something else before in my life that spoke of a, a better way of, you know, in, engaging and being creative and creating a safe space for kids, not using violence or threat of violence to get kids to do what you wanted to do. So in a way, I was able to break that cycle of harm I, by, by intervening, um, albeit in a very clumsy way. Yeah. And I wouldn't suggest that people go around punching teachers. <laughs> what I was doing was I was I was literally I was standing up, speaking out, and and making making sure that what I saw is wrong. Stop. Yes. Um, and in a way, this is what I'm doing now with my legal skills: is standing up and speaking out and saying, actually, this is a crime. Morally, it's a crime, and it is really just a matter of time until we recognize that in the international legal system as well. And indeed, that's the way it kind of works. Law plays catch up with where society is going. What played out as a child, as as a teenager at my school, was that, in fact, the law had just banned the use of the leather belt. But the problem was, was that these teachers didn't know what to do because they couldn't use a leather belt to whip children anymore. And this is why they then used their fists and and the threat of violence instead. And what I could see from that experience is that there was no help, there was no assistance, no support for, you know, these teachers who who didn't know, didn't have a pathway for a, a better way of doing things. And this is partly why I recognize how important transition periods are and the assistance that's required, not just leaving these companies on their own to work it out, but actually, you know, going in there and saying, okay, what assistance is required here to turn you around to make you a hugely successful uh, business in the innovation in the other direction? And Mm -hmm. that's all about policy backed up with mandatory law, obviously, which is where, you know, Ecoside Law comes into its own. But also it's about the flow of finance, you know, uh, financiers saying, okay, we're we're going to invest in renewables, uh, and we have to by law now. And this is really hugely important because actually everyone then starts buying into a new normative, which is non-harmful, and by law as well. And it becomes actually our new normative very quickly, because often this happens, you know, when we abolished slavery, it was because it was outlawed, it was criminalized. And, you know, literally within a year, two years, it was absolutely not the dumb thing to have a black man in chains. Yes. That's why it was genocide overnight when that, that was criminalized and the Nuremberg War Tribunals were brought. It, it, you know, before that, it wasn't a crime. Amazingly, countries had laws in place to make it lawful to commit genocide. And, of course, now we look back, you know, back to 19, late 1940s, and we say, gosh, you know, that's just untenable that genocide was yeah. lawful. And so it reframes our normative of what society at large sees as acceptable or unacceptable behavior. And what it does is it makes it, makes it the exception rather than the normative. And those who decide to continue with it can be held to account in a criminal mm. court of law. And that's very, mm. very important because what you find is actually the flow of investment won't touch a business 
that it's uh, undertaking criminal activity, and shareholders would, would find it untenable as well. So the power within this, um, I know, actually stems from my own direct experience of seeing how law can play out, as it did in my experience as a child at school, and how important it is to create the enabling conditions so that, you know, just like those teachers were not given those enabling conditions and support along the way, that we do that with these companies as we help them turn to the innovation in the other direction. Right. And so where did you, where did you, when did you decide, you know, what was the, the catalyzing moment that decided that, that, that uh, had you jump ship, so to speak, from uh, working uh, as a barrister into putting, you know, dedicating yourself to this particular um, cause at this time? Well, I found myself in court. I representing uh, a man who'd actually been very badly injured and harmed in the workplace. And it was a three-year-long case which had made its way up to the Court of Appeal. And on the very last day, judgment day, if you like, um, I found myself looking out of the window of the courtroom, a very high courtroom in the Royal Court of Justice in London, and we were actually waiting for the judges to come back in, and I found myself looking out over the treetops and, and the buildings, thinking, it's not just my client that's been badly injured and harmed here, so has the earth. Something needs to yeah. be done about that. And the next thought really did change my life. I realise now. I found myself yeah. thinking the earth is in need of a good lawyer. and and I I actually checked out of that court and thought you know how how do we create a legal duty of care for the earth you know here we've got a legal duty of care for my client as an employee we have legal duty of care to each other as human beings how do we create that legal duty of care for the earth and and, uh, actually I I didn't realise it then but I know now that is when my quest if you like began, I asked, because of course a a quester asks themselves a big question, so my big question, how do we create a legal duty of care for the earth, began at that very moment, and I I remember going back to my clerk's room, and I had, I I won this case in part, not completely, but in part, and it has actually changed history, you know, the course of... um, employment law that I was involved in at that time and the ruling that we had from the Court of Appeal reframed the law and on the basis of my legal argument and I remember going back to to, to the clerks who organise you know the cases that you do and they were very excited that you know I, I had succeeded in this case in this way and that now I was stepping into the kind of the super league of, of um, even bigger cases that I could be representing in court and I was saying, you know, now the world is your oyster, Miss. You know, you, you can fly from here. And saying to them, yeah, and you know what? I choose to leave. <laughs> I'm going to take wow. a year out uh, to examine this big question. And that was nine years ago, and I'm still on my year out, if you like. <laughs> and, uh, and I had to admit to my bank manager a few years ago when she said, when are you going to get back and make lots of money in, in chorus? I, I had to explain, well, actually it's too late. Uh, I, I'm, I'm too deeply engaged in creating the 
journey, yes. it's, it's safe passage, if you like, to take it forward and ensure that it's put in place for the greater good of humanity. <laughs> right. Wow. That's I, I, I love that question. The earth is in well, the earth is in need of a good lawyer. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, yeah. and. And we're lucky because the earth has found one. And so I, I recall from the, um, I, I, and I know that you've got lots of people supporting you as well, so um, not to forget those. And, but I, re- I recall from the, uh, the presentation in Brisbane, <coughs> excuse me, that you, there was, the, 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 if you can speak a little bit about the possibility and how close um, uh, this is to to becoming um, part of international law. Yeah, <clears throat> a lot's happened over the last four years since I proposed this into the United Nations. And one of the things that came out of it was that I was invited by a group of um, a representatives of 16 governments to put together a, a timeline a concept paper on how fast can we uh, implement the law of ecocide. Yeah. You know, what's the fast track route? And that that document was drafted up, and and in fact, myself and my team, we took it into every government right across the world. And what I've proposed is that this can be uh, tabled next year in 2015, and that there be a five-year period, uh, the amnesty period, the transition period. And during that time, companies are given the opportunity to realign themselves. What this does is actually it has huge implications because things change far faster. It's not just that this would be in place fully operational in 2020, but you'd find, for instance, the insurance industry who really understand and have a longer-term view would suddenly very quickly realign what they would um, insure and what they wouldn't and actually escalate their premiums very quickly, uh, recognizing that there'd be a phase-out time between 2015 Mm. and 2020. And so the financial pressures on a company become enormous that they cannot move forward. Investors no longer want to invest in something that's going to be deemed dangerous industrial activity within a five-year period. And so what what happens there is that the financial sector is given you know long term investment signals that they know won't change because it's very definitely going to become an international crime and and it closes the gate to investment in one direction but opens up the floodgates if you like to the investment and innovation in the other direction, so things can move very fast then so really, this is about working towards next year, um, all it requires is one head of state who's a signatory to the Rome Statute to actually call for this uh, to be amended. The, the document that has to be amended is the Rome Statute, which codifies the existing international crimes against peace. And it, this is perfectly possible. Um, indeed, it's more than possible. It is required that we move very fast with this. So... You know, next year is a great window of opportunity that can be used to, to, for this to happen. And when one head of state is a signatory, and ideally not just one, but a group of heads of state, call for this, it, it then has to be, it triggers a mechanism 
Uh, they move very, very fast. The assembly of parties have to meet within three months. There has to be a decision as to whether or not this, this shall be tabled. And the ball starts rolling very, very fast, uh, which is wonderful. What I am doing is I'm keeping this out in the public domain in a very big way. Um, if this went behind closed doors, I'm, I'm under no illusion that it, it would disappear very fast, because indeed that's what happened first time round. Uh, ecocide was to become an international crime and was being was part of the draft of the Rome Statute for 11 years between 1985 and 1996, when it was removed at a closed-door meeting, um, and indeed the meeting of the Working Group on Crimes Against the Environment was closed down as well, and it just disappeared off the horizon. And nobody knew about it because, of course, it happened behind closed doors, and how mm. one person or a group of people... I decided that this international law would be removed, and as a result, society at large and, and the earth is, is under great suffering today uh, because it, it wasn't put in place when it should have been put in place back in the mid-90s, 15 years ago. Right. So just just to just so that I've got this clear, in next year um, it requires one head of state um, for this Rome statute. I don't know what that means, but that's okay. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. To to um, and uh, as and what you don't want to have happen is you don't want it to. You, you need it to have a public face so that it doesn't get sort of slammed under the uh, under the carpet. Yeah. It, it has. It's very much out in the public domain. It always has been for the last yes. four years. Um, yes. And so the chances of that happening this time round are are so much slimmer. And indeed, I think this is where society acts as the watchdog over this. Um, yes. To ensure that it, it remains very much in the public domain and doesn't get fatally compromised along the way. It, it, the interesting thing is that ecocide is an international crime not a new idea. I didn't know that when I proposed it into the United Nations. But yes. you know, subsequently we've discovered documents and we've got the, the paper trail of evidence that shows as it goes back to 1972. In fact, even earlier than that now we've just recently discovered. But the Stockholm Conference was opened with a call for ecocide to be made an international crime. And so there's a huge history behind this of mm -hmm. attempts for this law to be made an international crime and how it's right. been swept under the carpet a number of times uh, behind closed doors. And part of what I'm doing is, is really you know, making sure that that never happens again by open sourcing everything that I do. All, all my written work now is under Creative Commons licensing. You can download, yes. you can find out an awful lot of information from the information portal that is the Eradicating Ecocide website. And yes. that's very important because the more that it's out in the public domain, uh, the greater the chances of this international law really, uh, you know, not just being ceded, which it has been now in a big way, but actually flourishing. Uh, and yes. taking root and uh, and you know the, the the solid foundations are already being put in place just now so that this can run its proper course. Yes, and and so uh, you said just one head of state, and and are you, are you how confident are you that that will happen? Yeah, it, it's a matter of when, not if. 
Yes, without a doubt. Yes. So, um, yeah. and that's a given, and, and that's understand. And this is in the international legal arena as well. Uh, so it, it's we have a window of opportunity next year. Whether or not it's taken actually kind of comes down to whether or not civilization is ready, if you like. Yes. In my opinion, um, yes, we are. Uh, it is required more now than ever. I and you know there are a number of um, actors who are really kind of on board with this that have the potential to, to make this happen next year. So, if anything, this is really more about how we ensure that it remains firmly out in the public domain, and yes. so that we create that safe space so that those individuals feel safe enough to stand up and speak out. And that really is about seeding this out into grassroots organizations, NGOs, um, and those those ethical businesses that really want to be seen to be leaders in this space, um, to come forward and say, yeah, we want to help create that safe space and give support to this law. And, you know, for those really kind of innovative entrepreneurs as well who recognize that this is precisely the kind of law that, you know, if they were to lead on it, will we'll really stand to benefit from it in a very big way uh, by yes. actually allowing them to move forward with the innovation that otherwise is, is, is struggling to really get off the ground at the moment because it's not being prioritized by law. You know, I'm, I'm yes. thinking of... Um, benign energy systems, um, renewable energy systems, even free energy systems now that are being talked about. Yes, yes. Uh, I interviewed, um, I'm not sure if you know of him, Hugo Spowers from River Simple a couple of weeks ago. Yes, yes. Yes, Yeah, Uh, that was such a wonderful uh, conversation because he's doing remarkable work. So, yeah, yeah, and and as you were speaking, I'm thinking, oh, you know, having someone like Elon Musk behind this would be great. (laughs) Yeah, he's a very good example of a business that really should be flourishing, um, but instead is struggling badly. And struggling to, you know, I always have this vision in, in the back of my mind of it's rather like the salmon, the endangered salmon trying to swim upstream, but the stream is, is push, pushing so hard and it's so polluted that that yes. salmon is really struggling to survive and indeed most of the salmons have been killed off. And what what a lot of ecocide does is, of course, it depollutes the, the stream and indeed actually turns the, the tide of change, you know, comes and turns the flow of the river so that the, the salmon is is actually supported and is enabled yes. and empowered to go leaping up that stream uh, very fast and many others too. So this is really about creating those enabling conditions for companies like River Simple to really go on and, and flourish in a big way because that's yes. what is required without a doubt. Yes, yes. And so tell me, in, in this nine-year period, ah. <sighs> It's um so so what has kept you going and uh, and I don't I mean on all levels you know what's kept you going um, at an emotional spiritual uh, in, uh, human level and uh, you know so because uh, this is this is uh, um, being the lawyer of the earth is you know is 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 a, is a pretty um, hefty quest <laughs> quest using your language yeah yeah well you know this is a thing. it's it's 
it's an evolution in a way. It's a kind of emergent space. I, I, I really, you know, had I known what was going to be involved, <laughs> I would have said, no way, Jose, from the outset. You know, maybe this is the way the universe works. It's, it's just, you know, trust, put trust in it. You don't know where you're going, but trust is it'll be great. And yeah. it is. Um, but I think I think this is the thing. Um, sometimes when you do step out of your comfort zone, if you like, um, yes. you know, you take the quantum leap into the unknown. Uh, that's where the magic happens. And sometimes yes. it's just a matter of putting trust in that and saying, okay, you know, okay, okay, I'll do it, I'll do it, and see where it takes me. And it, it, the beauty is, is actually I'm engaging so much more with a way of, my way of being is aligned with, with my way of doing. Um, I'm in, you know, it's an alignment with what I value in life. Yes. And so that's deeply nourishing in its own right. But yes. it has been and continues to be um, a, a, a remarkable quest, if you like, a remarkable journey, because it's also, I have to say, taking me on a, a more spiritual journey as well. And that yes. continues. It's kind of like peeling an onion, only the onion doesn't stop growing. Yes, yes. <laughs> and it, 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 it's truly remarkable because the beauty is is that, in a way, what I am doing is, uh, and I now know this, I'm daring myself to be great. And I mean this in, you know, the humblest of ways, uh, that it, it, I'm, I'm actually meeting the greatness of... You know, the quest of, of what's going on out there. I, I believe there's something greater at play here. Yeah. And if I am to engage with that greatness of what's at play there and have a part in it, then I must fully, you know, face that greatness as well and invite it into myself. And so it's been an exploration and continues to be an exploration of what it is to dare to be great. Uh, because I do believe that when human law is aligned with with um, spiritual law, then harmony yeah. shall prevail, and that that's something that you know has been discussed natural law and so on and so forth for thousands of years. You know, it goes back in time. This whole idea that actually human law is, uh, has has failed to be aligned with with higher law, if you like. Yes. Um, yes. The law of the universe. And it's finding how, how to bring that harmony into play and how we self and collectively govern our lives. And for me, this is, this is about an, one overriding principle of first, do no harm. And if we start yes. from that principle, then in fact, all that flows from it can only be beautiful. And indeed, yes. I mean, the, the um, Norwegian ecologist, he talked about thinking dutifully, acting beautifully. And this has huge resonance for me as a lawyer because it, it is about creating the, the duty of care, the legal duty of care. And out of that, what flows from it can only be beautiful, can only be constructive instead of destructive because we, we put the duty of care uh, to care for people and planet first over and above profit then uh, it's really a health and well-being provision for all beings, not just here and now, but for future generations as well. And the outcome can only be har uh, harmonious, if you like, rather than yes. causing great harm. 
So we move from significant harm to significant harmony. Yes. So uh, I missed who who was quoting that about beauty and acting beautifully. This was Arnie Ness, the ecologist. She coined the term deep ecology, uh, a Norwegian uh, philosopher and ecologist. Yes. Okay, lovely. I uh, so just. my, so I, I'm now claiming as my lineage, um, 27 years of being a student of Bucky Fuller, and um, oh, wonderful! Uh, and I, yeah, and 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 a serious student, not a not a uh, play student, um, and and, and really then about the art of living, really. You know? Yes, I, yeah, I yes, really, totally. I really get Bucky Fuller. He's just absolutely fantastic, and yes. how he 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 gave a great interview in that auspicious magazine called Playboy. <laughs> <laughs> he, 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 he talked about trim, ta- tra- trim tabs, yes. right? and actually I yes. quote this at the very beginning of my first book, because I was so taken by this article in, in Playboy of all places, where he yes. talks about each and every one of us being a trim tab. And a trim tab is, I'm sure you know uh, from his work, is, is that yes. tiny little button that you have in these huge ships, where you just press the button and it's connected to a wire, and it goes all the way to where the, the, the rudders are. And it just, it, it just turns something, you know, very little bit, but what it means is a chain of motion goes in place to, to turn the rudders around in the opposite yes. direction, and your ship can turn 180 degrees within a matter of not even minutes, uh, even less time. But it, all the pressure that's required to turn that huge cruise liner ship around is just, the energy of your finger pressing that button, that trim tab, and everything yes. can turn on quite literally a pin. And he, so he talks about how there are trim tabs in life and, and yes. how they can be put in place to really, you know, enable life to flourish. And ecocide law is a trim tab. You know, yes. You put this in yes. place, you press the button, everything shifts to the other direction, literally overnight. Yes. And and that's when I heard you talking. That was what I got. I I uh, I felt, um, and this is also part of the um, my years of working with Bucky's material, is looking for um, and it is looking for the trim tabs. But it's also it's the counterintuitive. It's it's uh, um, in the conversation I had with Hugo. I talked about how um, in my own family I've got. Um, uh, Two of my family members are buying the the uh, the Tesla X uh, S from um, Elon Musk. Very high priced cars, but they're not buying it because of its green credentials. They're buying it because it's a luxury car that that goes very fast. And yeah. <laughs> and and yeah, and yet you know this is this is the remarkable thing that there's almost counterintuitive. And and uh, I think someone like Elon Musk is so clever in the way that he's going about what he's doing, is because he's targeting the largest um, and probably most um, uh, resourced and and able to influence market. Um, yeah. But the, the side effect of that is he's actually doing something that's really good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so it's actually changing it from being a side effect to being the, yes. the ultimate driver. Yes, yes. Uh, but so I, it's realigning where where the, the the you know the actual intrinsic values are. It's no longer just a yes. marginal thing, but actually it's embedded at the very heart of all that we do. Uh, yeah, and and create from that space. 
Yes, and and that's why I really loved when I heard you speaking because I heard this enormous amount of um, of uh, actual care for the companies that you that that are going to be making these changes. I heard that in yeah. your thought process. This wasn't about um, uh, taking things away and decimating companies. It was it was let's 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 actually grow up and be human and, 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 and consider that the earth needs our care. And then, and then how do we allow um, ourselves to recreate, reinvent, um, as you said, on this level playing field that's created, uh, that gives, gives everyone the same advantage, but also opportunity. And it, it was all of that that I heard and which was just, uh, you know, it's, it's simply the best thing I've heard around um, the environment ever, actually. So, oh, well, wonderful! <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it really was. It was remarkable. So, I, I, I know that you have only just um, released your. Is it your third book? Yes, it is. Yes. I, I yes, dare you to be great. Actually, this uh, Saturday we had the the book launch of uh, I Dare You to Be Great. Uh, yes. my third book, which is a little slim volume. It's it's uh it's it really is about a, engaging with the whole concept of what greatness is. It's an invitation um for all who can take this law forward and we all can in lots of different yes. ways, whether or not it's into business, into our networks, our yes. know, um our spheres of influence. And an invitation to all to dare to be great, because I truly believe that this is a law that requires greatness within us to, to put in place. It's not a small step, it's a quantum leap, and it will require a kind of collective unifying upon that for us to allow within civilization to let this proceed in a way where we pull together with it. And so that it's also it's engaging with a third ecocide, which is an ecocide that can't be legislated, but it is a form of governance, and it's, it's about self-governance. What are those patterns of harm within ourselves that hold us back from being truly great? And how can we break the patterns, the, sh- the shackles, the chains of harm, the, the inner ecocides that play out within us? So it, it's it's a book that's tying in the personal as well as the, the kind of you know the professional side of you know taking the law of ecocide forward and uh, a process of, of deeper inquiry to to free us all up I hope to to move forward and and kind of that childlike thing of you know remember as a kid you, you play a game of dares you know uh, well now yeah. here I am playing the game of dares again only this time I'm I'm daring everyone who cares to dare to be great yes. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, it's, I only just thought of this now that you said that, that I have um, had a newsletter that's gone out for oh, 12 or 14 years, I'm not quite sure, um, and it's called Dare to Care. Ah, well, there we go. <laughs> Beautiful. That's exactly <laughs> yeah. what it's about, yes. Yes, yeah, yes. but I really love this um, uh, inner eco-side, how we, how we actually, uh, and we do, um, and, and so I could imagine... Does the book cover some of your? Um, because I know that I, I, I watched the uh, TED talk where you sort of uh, 
talked about this uh, daring to be great and yeah. you mentioned that this journey has been quite a um a profound journey for you um even at a spiritual level so i i do you cover some of this in in that book about um, yes absolutely absolutely yeah yeah um it, it threads in part my story and it's an invitation to um kind of fast track how we can break those inner ecocides within us from the stuff that I've been picking up along yeah. the way. Um, yeah. I'm very interested in how we can fast track things, you know. Why 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 take a long time process of trying to put something in place? If we can find the fast track, then let's take it and an invitation for us to really, you know, choose to discern where do you wish to put your energies in your life? And how how much more exciting it is when we align what we really care about with what we're actually doing in life so that our being and our doing comes into alignment. And, and how actually that seems to accelerate uh, yeah. everything that we're doing uh, and move things along far faster as a result. That that whole sense yes. of being in, in the flow uh, yes. and the help yes. and the support that comes forward as a result. So, so have you had... Um, deep moments of doubt. Oh yeah, God, absolutely. <laughs> terrible moments when you think you're reaching hit, you know, absolute rock bottom. But there's a kind of weird thing that happens there. Um, yes. And it's happened a few times for me where I really think, you know, it's so painful. Uh, I, I remember very clearly coming back from the Copenhagen climate negotiations, right. and I, yeah. I, I, I knew that actually the Copenhagen Accords, uh, everyone wanted a strong legally binding agreement, but nobody had read this potential 94-page document. I, I was invited into legally advising it, and what I could see was that if this was going to be strong legally binding, it was going to bind us into a disaster and so this is sometimes the problem that we get stuck on something without actually looking to well, what are what are the values what is the intent behind the document you know yes. being strong legally binding if it's if it's not got good intent behind it to help us move forward into a greater freedom a freedom from pollution from harm from destruction then really we're going to end up in even more of a mess and all I saw was a, a trading document, how to make money out of hot air, quite frankly. Right. Um, being able to trade the rights over forests, over um, carbon emissions, and so on and so forth. And it wasn't actually tackling the source of the problem. How do we stop the harm? Yes. I And I found myself coming back from Copenhagen and really, really being, actually, you know, howling with anguish about it. And asking, saying, you know, there has to be another way. Help me here. And yes. not even knowing what I was asking or who I was asking help for. And that stillness in the moment, that kind of, you know, we talk about the eye of the storm where the stillness is in the storm. And that moment of extreme stillness for me where it came to me, go back to first principles in law, because I'd had this idea in Copenhagen, someone had actually said, we need a new language to deal with this mass damage and destruction. And I find myself thinking, you know, it's like genocide, only it's 
ecocide. Oh, wow. All right. That should be a crime. And it was that moment of stillness, of anguish, seeing what had played out in Copenhagen that led me literally running down this rabbit hole of, of rigorous yes. legal uh, scrutiny and inquiry into whether or not ecocide could be made an international crime, and if so, yes. how. And as a result of uh, literally putting everything else in my life on hold for three months and intensely researching this, I discovered that, yes, ecocide as an international crime, uh, international law is, is deeply required, but more so there is a fast-track route here, just amending an existing statute to have this put in place, and that it could be done very fast. So I think these moments of deep anguish can actually, um, rather than being a moment of, you know, inner destruction, we can harness that energy, and instead of it being destructive, we can actually transcend it, and it can become intensely constructive allowing ourselves to feel that deep pain and, yes. you know, saying, enough, there must be another way, you know, what, I, I, calling in the help and saying, help me, where, where, where can I go here to really take this to a better place? And, yes. you know, the help comes, it does come from within, deep within. It's, it's a process of deeper inquiry, if you like, and yes. getting better at feeling, not just feeling better allowing ourselves to feel that pain and saying, okay, now how can I use my unique skills to take forward that which is required at this time in the history right. of civilization? Yeah. Mm. That's uh, getting better at feeling, not just feeling feeling better. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Otherwise we numb out. And when we numb yes. out, then um, the potential for decision-making that truly corrupts emerges, and I use that word corrupt uh, informally. Yes. Corrupt comes from core the heart, rupturing of yes. the heart, the yeah. inability to, to feel. And what it means is that decision-making is made at a business and a political level that has numbed out the capacity to recognize that it is indeed going to cause significant harm to people and planet. Uh, and, and that, it, that, that really corruption. goes... Sorry. That goes back no. to your, your, your time in the school with the, yeah. the normalizing, yeah. the numbing out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. And there yeah. was a corruption at play there, that buy-in yes. by everyone. And yes. until it was made illegal, uh, you know, it, it, it was a complete normative. But even when it was made illegal, it was still playing out because there wasn't yes. any help. Nobody was coming in and saying to the teachers that there is another way that you can engage with these kids here. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That, that yeah, I said learned, and for some, yeah. for some, it was a very painful learning process. For other schools, I mean, I ended up being expelled from that school and ended up in a far more progressive school locally where I grew up uh, in Stirlingshire, and for the first time, I had teachers asking my opinion on world events. This has never happened in my life before that someone wanted to engage with me on a level, equal basis. And that that for me was hugely freeing that I was allowed to even have an opinion that was far more, greater expression of of freedom and creativity at, at my final year in a different school. And as a result, there was far greater harmony between the 
school kids and, and the uh, teachers. And, yes. Uh, you know, a lot of us did very well there. Yes. And went on to do yes. great things, yeah. Yes, yes. And and why would we be surprised at that? <laughs> yeah, well, this is it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so, so I... Uh, I actually, um, and you probably don't know this, um, but the project that I'm creating, Polly, is called 2.23 a.m. Yes, <laughs> yes, no, I did. I read about it. Yes. Yeah. And so I, I, yeah, I normally, I normally uh, um, ask the question at the very beginning, and I didn't with you, and it's kind of, it's interesting that I didn't. I don't know why I didn't. But the, the 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 opening question of my podcast is what wakes you at two twenty three a.m. either literally or metaphorically, and I, I I have a sense that that we know the answer to that, but I do want to give you the opportunity <laughs> to to speak into that, um, you know, and and it really is, you know, because the tagline is a call to uncommon action, and you're definitely on the quest and a call to uncommon action. Is there anything else you'd like to add to that, you know, what wakes you at 2.23 a.m.? Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, that's a great question. Um, what wakes me at 2.23 it, it It's a greater belief in um, a more beautiful world, uh, yes. a greater belief in humanity, and a, and a greater way of being. Uh, yes. And, you know, when I wake up early, I think, great, okay, I've got a bit of space here, I can meditate, I can, you know, get some things done, whatever. Um, it's a gift, you know. Uh, yes. And it's a gift to be able to participate and contribute at this time in this world. Yes. Uh, and so, you know, if I'm being woken early, it's for a good reason. <laughs> Well, that, I, it is absolutely wonderful. Um, I just, uh, I just really deeply, uh, I'm grateful for the work that you're doing. And as I said, it was, um, um, just because my work is around, uh, supporting business to be more beautiful and, uh, and, uh, a more whole expression of what we know is possible. This just fits so nicely into that. And, uh, I, I think a lot of leaders in business in there too. Oops, we got cut off there in the recording. Uh, what I was about to say or finish with is that a lot of leaders that I know of are finding themselves awake at 2.23 a.m. because they feel what is happening in business and uh, they know that in some part of themselves that it is doing harm and they're really seeking to have other ways of, of expressing um, their life and their work in business that doesn't do harm and really honours earth and people and the whole. And so um, I thank you so much for your work and I... I think the world is um, owes you a debt of gratitude. Thank you very much. If you want more of 2.23 AM, then you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to the blog of 2.23am.com. That's blog.223am.com, where you'll find articles and interviews featuring stellar guests from around the world, plus tools and resources and much, much more. Follow 223AM on Twitter at twitter.com slash 2 underscore 23AM. 
That's two underscore two three a.m. Or on Facebook at facebook.com slash zero two twenty three a.m. Till next time, thank you for listening.